Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verses 46 through 45. The Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Glory to you, Lord Christ. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humblest state of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Gospel of our Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. So we're in the second week of the season of Advent, which includes the four Sundays leading up to Christmas. And it is a season, as we've been reinforcing, of waiting and longing for the King. Last week, if you were here, Victor Kim preached on Psalm 72, which is an old song of Israel about what it's going to be like when the king comes, particularly about the justice he's going to bring, and even more particularly about how he is going to treat the poor. He's going to lift them up, and their oppressors he will bring down. It says something amazing. Actually, it was right in our call to worship this morning on the front page of the bulletin. In uh, Psalm 72, verse 14, it says, Precious is the blood of the poor in Jesus' sight. Excuse me, in the king's sight. We're singing about Jesus. Israel at that point just didn't have the name yet. Their blood is precious in in his sight. You know, we sing a lot about the blood of Jesus. This is a song of Israel about how God feels about the blood of the poor. It doesn't atone for anybody's sins the way that Jesus' blood does. But it's precious. It's like gold. And when it runs, he's grieved. That was a psalm about the structural and national and actually even the cosmic changes that are going to happen when the king comes in his fullness at last. Same theme in this Advent series about the king and his justice, but this is a more personal song. It's Mary's song. Mary's song about what the king has done for me. This is a song that Mary sings in Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, when she finds out that the king is coming into the world through her womb. It is arguably, if you didn't know, the first Christian hymn. Now, they had the Psalms. Christians have always sung the Psalms of Israel as their hymns of the church as well. But it's the first distinctly Christian hymn, if not in terms of the order in which the New Testament scriptures were written, at least chronologically, because Christ hasn't come yet, and yet he has. He's in her womb. And a song about Christ comes out of her lips. And actually, for at least 1,500 years, the monastic communities around the world have sung the Magnificat every day. Because it's simply a song about what it means to be a Christian. And it's a song about great reversals. Very similar to Psalm 72. 
as we move from the structural, the national, the cosmic, to the personal, which you need to know about the personal justice and wholeness and healing that this king has brought and will bring in fullness when he comes again, which is what we're waiting for during Advent. Two points. Two points as we look more closely at this very old song. The lowly are lifted, the mighty are brought down. First, the first great reversal, the lowly are lifted. It's about God reversing Mary's situation. Reread verse 46 to 48 with me. Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Verse 48, for he has looked upon the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. It's like she's saying, me of all people, me of humble estate, me. They'll call blessed for for generations to come. Who is Mary? we, We don't actually have that much of an exhaustive biography about her in the Gospels. We do know a few things. We know that um, she was betrothed to a carpenter from an obscure town, not a notable town, Nazareth. We also know they weren't very well off financially because in Luke 2, when Mary brings Jesus to the temple for his dedication, they offer the offering that was allowed to be offered only for poor families. She's poor, and as she sings, of humble estate. Yet here comes this promise, which she's just heard from the angel Gabriel, and is being reinforced by her cousin Elizabeth, who she's met later in Luke 1. The promise is this to this person in a humble estate. The long-awaited Messiah and his kingdom are going to come through her body, through her. And in this way, her humble estate, her uh, unnoticeable estate is exalted and her situation is reversed and a lowly one is lifted up. Here's what you need to notice, first of all, about this, this song of Mary. The reversal of Mary's status has nothing to do with Mary. Not really. This is not the song of a small town girl rising up through her own determination and grit in making something of herself. The song actually emphasized God's action in every single line. He has looked on my humble estate. He who is mighty has done great things for me. Holy is his name. He's the one with mercy. He's the one who shows strength. He's the one who lifts up. He's the one who brings down. In fact, if there's anything we can say that's virtuous about Mary, and there is something, it is her faith. The angel comes, and what does she do? She says, let it be. Let it be as the word of God has said. Her faith in what God alone can do is what this song is about, and this is actually how it works for everyone. We don't lift ourselves up. We don't get up. We don't climb up in our faith. We are lifted up by the grace of God, and she says so. The song starts with me, and then it moves on to everyone. It goes from the personal to the universal in, in verse 50, and it carries through for the rest of the song. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. She's gone from the singular to the plural. 
He scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts, plural, brought down the mighty, filled the hungry with good things. It's how it works for everyone, not just Mary. We don't rise up, we are lifted up. And just to apply this really clearly to you and me, there are at least, maybe you'll consider more, but at least two questions that this raises for us. This song about the God who lifts people up by his own strength. First, how do you perceive your estate? Mary knew she was in a poor, unworthy, and humble estate. She knew that about herself. Do we know that about ourselves? That we actually need that? We need uplifting. Here's why that's an important question. You tend to notice the greatness of God when you recognize your own need. And that's a very simple statement, but it is vital because it's not how we live. Not most of us in 2021 Philadelphia. Even if we have some needs, we are not aware of just how much we need everything from God. This song is called the Magnificat, if you're familiar with that, uh, throughout church history. It's not just called the Song of Mary. It's more commonly been referred to as the Magnificat. Why? Because the first lines are, my soul magnifies the Lord. You think about a magnifying glass? You hold up a magnifying glass to make things look bigger. When we magnify God, we are not saying we are making God bigger. Did you know you can't make God bigger? It's like when we say, hallowed be your name every week in the Lord's Prayer. We're not saying God become more holy. He can't become more holy. He is as holy as he'll ever be. But we can proclaim his holiness louder than we did yesterday and realize it more than we did yesterday. That's what it means to hallow his name for us and other people to hallow his name. Same thing with him being magnified. He's not getting bigger, but you recognize how big he is when you look through a magnifying glass. Here's the thing, though. We look at other things through a magnifying glass don't we? Let me tell you all about some things that you saw through a magnifying glass this week. And I'm going to talk to you Temple students for a moment, because there was some violence on your campus this week. It was a week ago today. And you already knew, we all know already, this is a violent city. But it was magnified for you, for us, in some way. I'm a temple alum too. So it was magnified because this was somebody that you relate to in a more direct, more personal way, and probably should be. And this works in a similar way when you know someone who's really sick. I mean, just take this pandemic. You, we know the devastation, but when you know someone really close to you who's struggling, it magnifies it. It's not getting bigger, it's already massive. I mean, I suppose it could get bigger. Things could always get worse. But it's already massive. Our violence problem, the pandemic, it's already huge. Our recognizing it itself is not making it bigger, but it's bigger in our, our eyes. It happens all the time. For some of us, it may have happened actually more acutely uh, when we noticed the violence in Michigan this week. You know, at, at, at a school, a school, because we've all been to school. We know the vulnerability of a place like a school. 
And it's a massive problem. It didn't grow this week. It was already massive. Maybe it got a little bit bigger. It was already huge, but it got bigger in our eyes. Here's the thing, though, with magnifying glasses. You can, you can point them at the wrong thing, or you can point them exclusively at one thing. The invitation of this song that the church sings every day is magnify the thing that must never get smaller, whatever else you perceive. And that is that he can do anything, right? My soul magnifies the Lord. And the thing is, if you flip a magnifying glass the wrong way, things get smaller, right? And this is happening when we are focused only on the very true, not to be ignored, terrible things around us. But we've got this terrible practice of making him seem smaller at the same time, and that can never happen. That's why we need this song. My soul magnifies the Lord. Our need for him is greatest when our helplessness is greatest. My soul magnifies the Lord. My soul does not magnify my poverty and trouble, though I am not ignorant of it. So, second question. That's just the first one. Do you know your estate? Do you know that you need him, and is your magnifying glass directed appropriately? Here's a second question, and I'll just leave this to you. I won't belabor this point. How do we perceive the humble estate of others? Do we recognize our own, our own need before God and his greatness to deliver us? But how do we think about other people's humble estate? Let me just put this to you very, very simply. Who are the Marys that we tend to ignore? And this is a theme that the church has to look at during Advent if you're going to talk about, if you're going to long at all, if you know how to say something like, come Lord Jesus, which is the cry of Advent. We're not at Christmas yet. Saying he's come. We're remembering the long waiting of Israel, and in a lot of ways we're waiting in the same way for him to come again. And you need to look around at the other people who have a lot of have a much easier time crying out, Come Lord Jesus, because life is terrible in ways that it isn't necessarily for us. Are you looking at them? Do you notice them? Do you turn away from them? Let me put it this way: if we've got our magnifying glass trained on the living God who thinks this way, who thinks that the blood of the poor is precious. If we've got our magnifying glass on him, then that sensibility will magnify itself in our midst as well, in our church as well. And if it doesn't, that means he's not being magnified. If that's not, if that heart for the helpless, the poor, those of humble estate, is not magnified in our midst. That can only mean we are not, God help us, we're actually coming to church and we're not magnifying him at all. That is a diagnostic truth. It's not the gospel yet. But this is a little bit of the breaking of the heart that has to happen in order to receive the gospel. So the second reversal. First reversal, lowly or lifted. Second reversal, the mighty are brought down. Verses 51 through 53. 
He's shown strength with his arm. He's scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones, exalted those of humble estate, filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. The mighty brought down. It's a hard thing to read. But listen to this. If we are, quote unquote, mighty, read, if we have everything that we need, if we want for nothing, if we are proud in heart, if we think that we are owed or entitled, there is a sense in which we need to be brought down. We need to be scattered in the imagination of our hearts, as I believe the NIV puts it. I love that, that, that translation. Scattered in the imagination of our hearts. Our imagination, our fantasy life that we don't need things from the living God. That needs to be scattered. We need to be brought down. In the mighty, the rich, we particularly need to hear this in December. Because we flip the magnifying glass too, and I include myself. My needs are not remotely the same as many of the poor in the city, at least materially. I'm spiritually in the same place exactly. But we have a way of looking the wrong direction through the magnifying glass too. There is a, my father-in-law actually sent me a letter he read last month that was written 62 years ago uh, by the author John Steinbeck. And he wrote it to his good friend Adlai Stevenson, who later was the Secretary of State under Kennedy, I believe, if I got that right. This is what he writes about Christmas in 1959, and you see if this is still in play in 2021. Steinbeck writes, you know, there is one kind of Christmas in a house where there is very little. And a present represents not only love, but sacrifice. The one single package is opened with a kind of slow wonder, almost reverence. And then there's the other kind of Christmas. With presents piled high, the gifts of guilty parents as bribes, because they have nothing else to give. The wrappings are ripped off and the presents thrown down and at the end the child says, is that all? And after describing these two Christmases, Steinbeck compares America to the second Christmas. He says, having too many things, we spend our hours and money on the couch searching for a soul. A strange species we are. We can stand anything God and nature can throw at us except our plenty. If I wanted to destroy a nation, I would give it too much and would have it on its knees, miserable, greedy, and sick. Listen, if this is you, like it is me, here's what you need to know. Here's what the mighty need to know and definitely the lowly need to know. This is one thing that is made plain. You know, this is a theme for like that song of Isaiah that John the Baptist is screaming about and everybody thinks he's crazy over by the river. We also remember during Advent, he's coming. The mountains are going to be brought down. Valleys are going to be filled in so that like there's parody so that everybody can see him, everybody can hear him and decide, do I want this king or not? And there's not going to be any excuse. Here's what you need to know. The news is actually good if you listen to it. The greatest reversal in this story isn't the human 
low being lifted up or the human mighty being pulled down. It's the eternal son of God, the one who is infinitely worthy of every honor, him becoming small. Him voluntarily not being brought down from his throne, but stepping down by taking on a human form while remaining the Almighty in his essence. Voluntarily taking on a humble estate. What a reversal is that? What what a reversal. Taking on the flesh of the weakest of the weak, an infant in the womb of a nobody. And why would he do this? Because if he didn't, there would be no hope for arrogant, proud, self-sufficient, mighty people like me. Maybe like you. He came down so that I don't have to be cast down. I can join him in his humble place and name my need and never stop thanking him for helping me get there by his grace instead of by his rod. Let me just bring it home if I can. The most famous song about God's greatness here in the history of the church was sung on the occasion of Christ becoming small. Song about his greatness, the greatest one, was sung on the occasion of him becoming small, becoming one of us, walking with us, being fully and obediently human, and then suffering and dying as the perfect sacrifice for my arrogance and all the brutality that I inflict on this world so that I might be perfectly and completely forgiven and lifted up in his presence in eternity. If you would become one in need, you will be lifted up by his grace. I said this during our series on worship. What do we do when we come in? My friend Stephen puts it this way. We make ourselves as low as we can, as low as dust, like barely skirting through the doors, knowing that we're unworthy, unworthy, unworthy. And yet when we get here, we find out by the grace of our host, there's actually a seat at his kingly table with our name on it as his heirs. We make ourselves low. He will lift us up. It's what he does. He always will. He will never cast away one who professes their need. From generation to generation, Mary sings. That means it still happens today. And if you've never said, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner, he hears from your lips to God's ears. Nothing will get in the way. He still saves and he still lifts up. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, Amen.